Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put in a time capsule. They tell me four things that they cherish and want to keep safe, but they also tell me one thing that they'd like to get rid of from their life, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor and writer Michael Spicer, who for many years was a jobbing actor, writer and comedian. He was part of the regular cast of The Mash Report on BBC Two and made short films such as Paradise Males with the wonderful Diane Morgan and sketches for BBC Three. He got paid, of course, but never quite enough for him to be able to quit his nine-to-five job. But then, in 2019, he came up with The Room Next Door a series of sketches posted on his Twitter account about a fictional advisor feeding lines into the earpiece of world leaders. And everything changed. Yes, I'm sure you've seen them. And if you haven't, look them up. He amassed up to 60 million views through these sketches, which led to a book deal, a nationwide tour, a radio series, and a regular slot on The Late Late Show with James Corden. So does overnight success after 20 years mean that Michael will pick champagne and caviar to go in his time capsule? I very much doubt it. But let's find out. Here is the time capsule of the very charming Michael Spicer, which we recorded with me at my home and him in his garden. Yes, it's weird, isn't it, how you can go through a career for ages and ages and nobody really notices, and then suddenly <laughs> everybody notices. Yes. And I, along with everybody else, went, oh my God, that's genius. <laughs> You're very kind. I was basically um, doing regular work, having regular yeah. jobs up until 2019. So, right. yes, this still feels relatively new and slightly surreal. Yeah, I'm sure. It's weird, isn't it? You have one idea. Yes. You think, so? well, that could be quite funny. Yeah, indeed. I'd be having ideas like that all the time mm. for, for, for simple throwaway sketches. And um, that was just another one of those. But yeah. I don't know, it, it just, just chimed with so many people. 
there's a reality to it. Mm. You imagine that there almost is. In his own head, somebody's saying to him, don't say that, don't say it, don't, please don't, oh, you idiot, yes. you twit. I think there's a, there's a, an element of, um, I almost thought at the beginning that, it, that the room next door man didn't actually exist. He was just um, a person in his head. Mm. In as much as we've got somebody like that in all our heads. Yes. Uh, a good filter. <laughs> well, hopefully. <laughs> and Boris Johnson simply didn't have one or doesn't have one. No. Um, because of his, uh, his, his upbringing and his privilege. So. And lunacy, some might say. And, and sheer lunacy, yeah, mm. absolutely. So, yes, I had absolutely no idea it would, uh, it would uh, take off as much as it did. I, 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 I posted the first one like late at night just before I went to bed, you know, and woke up the next morning. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was absolutely insane. Yeah. I think that's true for almost everybody who has success in particularly comedy. Mm. Is you think, well, I think some people will get this joke. And then, mm. amazingly, everybody does. Yes. Yes, I think uh, just based on my influences, I have been, I've always been a little bit offbeat and and. and the Room Next Door sketch was very much a, a universal thing. I think it was something that people got um, because I think obviously there was just that that sense of frustration at mm. the time, which I suppose still is felt very much now mm. because not, not, a, not a great deal has changed. But, um, yeah, things I was doing in the past were, I guess you could say I had a very cult following, a very tiny cult <laughs> following of people who kind of got my very uh, very obscure stuff. Um, but yes, this was something with this I thought. The first thing I thought was, wow, it really, he really is searching for a response to a very, very simple question because mm. he doesn't know how to respond to a simple human question. Or in fact, doesn't want to tell the truth. Well, that, this is the thing. I don't know whether we wanted to tell the truth and go down a, a, a bizarre rabbit hole or just lie and say, what do normal people do? He couldn't work it out. So he blurted out, I make model buses uh, <laughs> in my spare time. I know. I mean, it's it completely bizarre to think about it now, but that uh, it, it handed me my career. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a blatant lie. I think so, yeah. What I really loathed about it at the time was that people were saying, he said buses because he knew that that would mess with the Google algorithms and therefore all the bad stuff that he did as mayor, as London mayor, with regards to buses, would fall off the Google rankings. Oh. And I thought to myself, do you really think that Boris Johnson has a handle on Google algorithms? Do you think he even <laughs> knows what it means? No. Of course not. So that, that, no. that's, that's annoying. That fantastic one in the interview where he's saying, do you know what Clause C is? Yes. And he's, mm. he fumbles around for a while, and you're brilliant. He's saying to him, don't say, don't say no, don't say no. And yeah. then he says, no. Yeah. No, no, I don't. no, no, I, no, no idea. No, I thought that was really good because it was so short and sweet. It's like my shortest one. It's about forty yeah. seconds long because you don't really need any more than that. You kind of no. just there it is in a nutshell. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's been prepped for one particular answer, mm. and uh, as soon as he gets thrown off, that's it. He's he's uh, he's completely floundering. I think he probably thought he could get away with that if he delivered it in a sort of comedic way because there mm. is still this, uh, this sense of him being, oh, bumbling Boris. The terrible thing about his shtick is that he convinced the people that, oh, Boris is all right, you know, you could have a drink with him. Yeah, mm. 
But the truth of it is, he wouldn't want to have a drink with you. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, I think the wonder of the idea mm. is that it would almost work with anyone. Everybody has a flaw. And once you target it, it's funny, I think. Mm. So, for example, Keir Starmer, you wouldn't think would be mm. a person you'd want to attack. Mm. You could attack him for not attacking. Exactly that. I did do one. Oh, right. I've not seen that. No. Well, I did it for the, uh, the mass report, which I've been part of for several years now. They brought me on. They basically auditioned me as an actor to do man in the street stuff. Uh, but when the room next door happened, they said, if one comes up, you know, reserve it, don't post it, reserve it, and we'll put it on the show. So that's what happened. Um, Keir right. Starmer was basically caught in a trap whereby he said, yes, we would tax certain people. Um, <laughs> and what he was trying to say was rich people. He'd tax rich people. He'd have a wealth tax. You know, yeah. it's, it's not controversial. But he couldn't say it until, uh, you know, about five minutes in, where he kind of, you could see the surrender in his eyes. He just went, yeah, OK. <laughs> yes, we, we tax the rich. <laughs> because they've got lots of money. Because they've got lots of money. It's not, you know... <laughs> it's a perfectly it's, reasonable argument. It is a it? reasonable argument, but it's all about the phrasing of it, you know. And, and he's, he's, he's boxed into a corner and because he wants to, he wants to take people over to his side and he mm. and he can't do that without you know ruffling a few feathers and he needs to learn that <laughs> yeah. but it's weird isn't it because i know rich people and you know some rich people clearly don't want to give a penny of their wealth away they will mm. they will their reaction is the reaction you assume or most people assume rich people have to the idea of being taxed more than other mm. people well you're not having my money i'm going to find a way around it i'm going to put it in an offshore account i think but there are loads of rich people who go yeah fair enough yes exactly that and um and this is why keir starmer needs to grow some balls uh, I was going to say that, Mike, but I thought, what's a nicer way of saying it? But I'm yes. too blunt. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I wanted to say, I really loved your short film that you did with Diane Morgan. Oh, right, yes. Paradise Males. It's really good. If anybody's not watched it, go on YouTube, find it. It's great. Yes, that came about because I was, um, I had done another short film and I, I uh, posted it when I had, like, 30 followers. Mm. And Diane DM'd me on Twitter and said, um, that was really funny. I think you and I are kind of on the same wavelength, so if you have anything else, we should do something. And me being me came up with that idea mm. that day. I thought, right, here we go. <laughs> Strike while the iron's hot. So I, I thought of a, a good two-hander that we could do together. And she managed to get this crew that she'd worked with on Charlie Brooker's show. And we got it done in a premiere in in one day, and it was it was it was amazing because that was kind of like the first time when you know like a, a hand came out to grab me <laughs> and say yes, you are capable of doing the things that you really want to do. Mm. So it was a great experience. Yeah, so we've kind of stayed in touch. And when Mandy happened for her, she said, "Would you like to be part of it?" And and I, I jumped at the chance. And and yeah, me and her were cut from the same cloth. We have exactly the same tastes in comedy and we both make each other laugh yeah mm. she's great brilliant okay so we should move on to talk mm. about the five things that you want to put into your time capsule mm. how's it been going um not too bad i'm not very sentimental i have to say i don't hold on to things like like that so i guess my my objects are quite basic quite rudimentary but they do have a connection with 
my comedy and what I wanted to do with my life. So that's that's what I've decided. Great. Okay. Well, let's find out what they are then. What's your first thing? Um, well, my first thing is, um, and I know Stephen Fry did this in your very first episode, but I've also <laughs> chosen my typewriter as well. The weird thing about this is that I was looking at it last night on Google, and it's and the thing I totally forgot about it is that it was called an Olivetti Tropical. <laughs> There is nothing tropical about this typewriter. It was, <laughs> it was several shades of grey. And it was, in a, it was in a case, so you could carry it around like a briefcase. And my parents got me that Olivetti when I was probably nine or ten because I was writing stories at that age, very, you know, children's stories, really. And they got me this typewriter, which, you know, every other Christmas it was like a something from Star Wars or whatever. But they got me this typewriter and um, I didn't stop. Clap, 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 you know. Uh, just trying to think of... You know what? what's really strange about it is that I felt like it was my calling. Like, yes, I will create magic on this thing. Um, I didn't. Of course, <laughs> I was 10. But I would write all sorts of things, short stories and poems. And, and I actually wrote a, a book all about the programmes that I watched at the time, sort of 87. So that is something that kind of, all the toys have gone, but the typewriter remains. And, and I, I do think it was vitally important at that point in my life because I just didn't stop and I still don't stop. How observant of your parents, though, to know that? Up until that point, did you write things in longhand? Yeah, I did, yeah. What I did first was I drew an awful lot. I'm not bad. And so my mum would go to WH Smith and get these massive sketch pads and I would just fill them with um, imagined posters of films that I had yet to write. I mean, that's, that's something that does stick in my mind a lot as well, is when I would go for day trips to London. I, mean, I was born in East London... But so we would go for day trips to London. Mm. And the thing that really stuck out for me is, is looking at all the movie posters in the, in the London Underground. And some things just stayed with me and I would go home and I would replicate them. But soon I was just imagining my own films and my own posters. And then I started writing the stories that those posters would go with. <laughs> but again, I'm not saying that I was a genius. This is probably <laughs> completely unreadable tosh. Um, but I got great joy from it, yeah. And also, that's a learning process. You know, you write Tosh in order to eventually not write it. I was writing Tosh well into my 40s, Mike. It's, uh... <laughs> and you've still got Tosh to go. <laughs> I've still got Tosh to go, yes. Did you ever visit that little poster shop in central London? I did. The street that runs parallel to Shaftesbury Avenue? Yes, I did go there. Mm. A fascinating place. And I actually got my... Um, poster fix from anywhere I could find it. There was something about, I don't know, post, film posters in the 80s that all had a very similar vibe and I liked ensemble casts, you know, doing things. <laughs> Each member of the cast doing something. I suppose some films I, you know, I enjoyed at the time, like, uh, like, like Back to the Future, but the, the iconic poster with that, you know, I would spend hours trying to replicate that. And, and the film came secondary <laughs> because, uh, because, uh, because I guess I was really into my art at the time. 
But yes, eventually, as I reached 9, 10, I started jotting down ideas for, for stories that these posters could relate to. And that's when my mum and dad, yeah, got me the Olivetti type, the Olivetti tropical typewriter. Tropical. Yes, beautiful. <laughs> see, now, you've made a big mistake. It was grey, but if you'd ever licked it... Oh, no, really? You see? The flavours. Yeah, it's flavors. unbelievable. <laughs> You're immediately on a desert island. Yes, yes. Like those Lilt adverts of the 80s. <laughs> totally tropical. Well, totally yes. tropical, where the people were <laughs> always reassuringly white for some reason. <laughs> uh, what a shame, though. I always think for those people who worked in cinemas around that time, who every week would change the poster mm. and then screw up the old one and <laughs> throw it in the bin. No. They must live a life of total regret. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think even back then, if I'd have been working in my local Odeon, I'd have kept them all for sure. Mm. Even the police academy ones, you know? <laughs> What, all 17 of them? <laughs> yeah, my guilty pleasure is those posters in particular. My goodness me, they were so good. My youth was just immersed in that kind of culture. When did you move to computers? Oh, that's a good question. I, th I moved to um, computers <laughs> in 1991, I think. Um, and I got, uh, again, another gift from my parents. I got a, an Atari ST... 520, I think. That was mainly for games. Yeah. But I had a very basic word software, I suppose. Mm. Um, and uh, I can remember vividly writing scripts, you know, comedy sketches on, on these very basic files and literally having nothing to do with them. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't send them anywhere because there was no internet. <laughs> so I would just do them for my own personal pleasure. Sometimes I would print them out, you know, on a brother printer. <laughs> you know, that awful thing that printers used to do. And um, perhaps sort of reenact them with my um, radio with the record and play feature. But yes... Once we moved into the world of the internet and Apple, I snapped up a Blueberry iMac and, yeah, just started writing and sending stuff. I'd had an Olivetti which had a little tiny little screen on it mm. and you, you type and the words would come up on the screen and then when you got to the end of each line, you had the option to go back and change your mind. Right. <laughs> but only within a line. Yes, it's incredible. I do um, have um, very guilty pleasure, which is to seek out old adverts and general TV presentation from the 80s and 70s. And so these incredible adverts promoting these computers that's, that were just absolutely state-of-the-art. Mm. And 20 years later, we're, we're having a laugh about how clunky they are. But there's a lot of beauty in those old, in those old models. In fact, there is yes. in, 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 in when, the, when those... Blueberry IMAX came along. They were extremely gorgeous. They won me over. Apple won me over with those, with just mm. the way it looked. Yeah, of course. But um, some people hanker after those days, the days mm. when computers first started and things were slower. You took more time over things. If you wanted to illegally download a song, <laughs> it could take you two hours. <laughs> I know. Yes. Several months of my life were wasted illegally downloading music. <laughs> Well, people f tend to forget, but the first thing that I remember in terms of just trying to watch a video online is having to download the software called Real Player, 
Ah, yeah. Uh, and the, and the once you downloaded it and put it on your screen, it was it did look like a TV on top of a VCR. That was the <laughs> that was the look of the actual screen on your computer, and it would take hours hours <laughs> to watch five seconds of something. Yeah. I remember you know passing the time at a place of work once and just say, and we were talking about Blazing Saddles of all things. And I said, oh, there's a great bit in Blazing Saddles. Let me find it. <laughs> and to find this clip, to put it on a piece of software that could understand what it was, yeah. it took me all day. It was like, <laughs> do you know what? It's just not worth it. Just take my word for it. People have been promoted. <laughs> exactly. People have had children. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, do you know what? Take my word for it. It was funny. Well, like Tom Hanks, then, you will never be without your portable Olivetti Tropical. It's the only reason I follow Tom Hanks on social media is when he posts his little pictures of his typewriters. <laughs> He's never without one, apparently. I'm very jealous of his collection, for sure. OK, well, we'll put that into the time capsule. That's your first item, Michael. OK. OK, let's move on to item number two. Number two is my bowler hat. I've got a bowler hat from Bailey of Hollywood that my wife gave to me on my birthday. And I just absolutely love bowler hats. <laughs> and this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the reason... Why? I mean, I don't wear it. <laughs> I'd love to. I would absolutely love to. But we're now at that stage in our society where if you wear a bowler hat, it's, it's because you want to make a statement. And back in the day, men wore bowler hats. All men wore bowler hats. <laughs> Unless they were working class and they wore a cloth cap. Cloth cap. Mm. Um, yeah, and didn't really see much. I mean, uh, the thing is, if I was around, that's what I'd be wearing, the cloth cap. But... Um, <laughs> No, but I really wanted to experience that that time when bowler hats were just de rigueur. Mm. But they also have a connection uh, with Laurel and Hardy because they were pretty much my my other parents mm. growing up. Um, they were always around. And I think this is because I think Channel 4 and the BBC had kind of equal share of them in the 80s when I was growing up. And the thing about scheduling back then was that if they had 20 minutes to fill <laughs> they put Laurel and Hardy in they, Laurel and Hardy was like the glue between other programs it was just a filler yeah can you imagine this filler genius <laughs> comedy filler um, <laughs> and Saturday morning television always had a great chunk of Laurel and Hardy exactly the weird thing about Laurel and Hardy is that they would put them on in the morning for children but they would also put them on late at night. Sometimes it would be the last thing that BBC One would have mm. because they needed to get to midnight or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know. They were all over the schedules on both channels. I saw them all the time and uh, I, I recorded every single new one that mm. came along in the schedules. And, of course, by the late 80s, Virgin, of all people, had the rights to all the shorts and all the features and put them out, you know, in proper chronological order. Mm. So I bought all of those, naturally. There are hundreds, though, aren't there? Hundreds, because they had a, a, an enormous catalogue of films in the silent era, as well as the talkies. Mm. So they, they had hundreds. And so, naturally, I would reenact them in the living room, and, um, and not, I wouldn't dress up as them. But I would always make sure I had the, had the hat because there was so much hat business, wasn't there? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, almost inevitably, they would be crushed or, or 
or a, or a hole was pumping punch <laughs> through them or something. It is their ability to use those things as a prop that is part of their genius, I think. Yes. The twirling of it or the fiddling with it, the fact of... And they used their ties in the same way, didn't they? Oliver Hardy always, always yes. fiddling with his tie whenever he spoke to a woman. Always. And it's so endearing, despite the fact he was so pompous and, mm. and awful to stand most of the time. And yet he could just turn on a sixpence and do his little tie trick and suddenly he was just this amazingly sympathetic baby figure. Mm. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I, as you say, that is part of their genius. But I remember, like, as I say, I've, I've said before that I used to go to uh, day trips to London. And uh, inevitably, I would go to the uh, souvenir stalls, buy a London bowler hat that had <laughs> the Union Jacks around the uh, ribbon. And I'd rip that off. <laughs> Get home, rip that off, because that wasn't part of it. And then use that and, um, and try to basically replicate what they were doing. And I, I feel like I've still got that in me, their timing and mm. their, their little glances. Um, I mean, the thing about Stan Laurel in particular is that he could eat something <laughs> for 10 minutes. Yes. And that would be funny. A boiled egg. Just eating a boiled egg. Oh. There's one thing where he's eating wax fruit. <laughs> it's such yeah. a long piece. It's so long. But you don't want it to end. Because of the way he's reacting to it. I love the fact that he could do what you're dissuaded from doing in comedy all the time, which is double take. He does lots and lots of double takes, but they're beautifully subtle. They're tiny little things. He just looks at someone and looks back at them. Just little mm. tiny little looks with his eyes. Absolutely. Without saying what. Mm. It's there. It's in the performance. Indeed. And he, was, um, he wasn't quite like Harpo, but he was very economical with, mm. his, <laughs> with his dialogue. I mean, the, the interesting thing is um, I remember many, many years ago, because I basically consumed anything that was related to them, Radio 2 did a programme uh, that was presented by Barry Cryer, and it was all about their dialogue together. Uh -huh. And it was like a half hour of their interactions mm. over the course of these films. And so there were, you know, occasional nuggets of just pure poetry, yeah. really beautiful. But their strength was the tiny little mannerisms, as you say, the tiny little things. There's a short, I think it's called Come Clean, uh, where Oliver says to Stan, you know, they've rescued a woman from drowning and they know how that's going to look if they bring her home to the wives. Mm. So he says... Well, it's okay. We're innocent. We'll, we, we'll just, you know, we'll just say what we need to say and, and it's fine. Off you go. So Stan goes, oh, okay. He takes one step and then goes, what? And as he does that, his hat wobbles. Oh. He kind of, hmm? Like that. He, he's like, what? That moment, he could have done that 50 times mm -hmm. and it would just be as perfect. There was something about them that totally resonated with me and my and I guess gave me that desire to just consume more comedy mm. and probably film too comedy in film they were very particular about their performances what they Stan Laurel was incredibly detailed in yes. the way he wrote it and the way he would then direct it quite often yes so do you like to work that way? Do you work on instinct and let things happen? Or do you really work it out before I'm going to do this? Because that's the, the real skill, I think, of them, is they can do that incredibly tight performance, but at the same time yeah. make it look as if they've never done it before. Yeah, 
when I'm writing, I do think about how it will look as well. Mm. I mean, I suppose that's why a lot of writers become directors because they can they can see it. Mm. So yes, I I mean, I with everything I do, I write, direct, and edit. So it is it is methodical and it is tight, um, and I don't really leave things to chance. You know, I do really admire the thick of it, for instance, mm. with their takes that they do. Once they've got it, they then do these takes where they just let it flow a bit more. Yeah, It's something I very much relish and enjoy doing as well. I love improv. But no, it needs to be perfect, mm. you know. So yes, perhaps that is something we have in common, yeah. There are so many wonderful moments in Laurel and Hardy films. You know, Way Out West, the dance they do before they go into the bar is probably one of the greatest cinematic moments in the history of cinema, I think. For sure. There isn't a person of my age, certainly, who, given a bowler hat, wouldn't immediately take it off their head, scrunch the top of their hair and say, I'm sorry, Ali. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's just exactly, everybody yes. did it. Now, I wonder then if that is continuing. Do you think that in the world where you basically could choose to watch anything, do you think people are choosing to watch Laurel and Hardy or do you think they're missing it? I don't know. I get the feeling that because the world has changed so much, that people consume so much, that it, there is a danger of that. But I think with people like Chaplin and Keaton and Laurel and Hardy, you, they can't possibly die because of the amount of groundbreaking work that they did. Mm. I think anybody who wants to be in film, wants to be part of comedy film industry, TV industry, need to go back to that and check it and make sure you know, there's something historically important about them still being around. I think they're responsible for an awful lot of comedy that we see today, for sure. Mm. And also for the fact that you own a beautiful bowler. And I own a beautiful bowler, mm. yeah. Lovely. All right, let's put that into the time capsule. That's number two. Thank you. Michael, what's number three? Right, as is always the case with my podcast and most others, I understand, we now have to interrupt this chat to play you some adverts. Do stay with us. We'll be back with you in two flicks of a lamb's tail. Whatever the bloody hell that means. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Let's not dilly-dally. Let's follow the van, as my old man always said, and find out what Michael Spicer will put in his time capsule next. Here we go. Three is a book, but it's not a, it's not a storybook. Yeah, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say it's actually a, a very, very battered book called Monty Python, Just the Words. <laughs> um, there was volume one and volume two, and at one point they brought both volumes together and the, the other volume was upside down. And mm. So you got, you, got, you got halfway in and then you had to turn it upside down and start again. And it had all the scripts from all four series. And I bought, I bought that in sort of 1990, I guess. Uh, and I didn't put it down for years. I just, uh, I, I mean, I read it over and over again, but then I started to record myself doing them as well. Mm. I, I guess that, I mean, I never went to acting school. So it was, it was, um, it was almost like I was training myself to do accents and, and, and timing and delivery and stuff like that. Mm. This came after I was introduced to Monty Python by a set of repeats in, uh, in 87 when I was 10. Mm. They repeated the second and third series after the match of the day on Saturday <laughs> nights. And my dad, who was a big fan, said, yeah, you can stay up. You can stay up and watch this. It's fine. So, you know, a 10-year-old, there's a certain amount of understanding of Monty Python and stuff you were allowed to go over your head. You just watch it. You go, yeah, okay, that's gone over my head. That's fine. I'm 10. I'm not supposed to understand. <laughs> I don't know who Kierkegaard is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. There were so many things that they introduced me to. So I, I, I consumed all of those episodes. I mean, when people say now, oh, it was very hit and miss, Monty Python, I can't remember that. All I can remember is just being stunned <laughs> and wowed by it and how it changed my view of the world. And when this book came out, I just felt like I could be a member of that team. Like I, I, I used to do all sorts of extremely cringy things. Like I, I, I wrote my own comedy tie-in annual, you know? Mm. <laughs> a Monty Python annual. <laughs> um, and, and imagined that I was part of that team and that one day, perhaps when I was old enough, I would be able to get them all together and reunite them and we'd be in this new team. But um, yes, just that book, it was just always with me. It was on my bedside table. It was always around. And I would, I would record myself doing a sketch as a way of uh, cheering myself up or, you know, after a particularly bad day at school or whatever. It was uh, vitally important. Mm. Yeah. Have you ever met any of them? No. <laughs> no. It's strange to think that actually those days are increasingly limited, the opportunity to do that. I met Graham Chapman in Australia. He came to a table. We were having lunch, came over and introduced himself. How weird is that? Incredible. It was weird. Yeah. We all went, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know. Like, like, yeah, this is why we're here. They are, for me, absolutely the reason that we were doing what we were doing. He was delightful, absolutely charming man, sat down and chatted to him for about, about an hour about all sorts of things. Mm. And then gave us a great big tin of... Um, Three tonnes tobacco, I think it was, but actually it turned out to be dope. 
<laughs> Fantastic. Yes, indeed. A great memory. I mean, I don't know what I'd do if I did meet them, to be honest, because um, because they were so incredibly important to me. And not just, the, not just the, the shows as well, it was the records and the films. I mean, this is when we were talking about Stan and Ollie having incredible, subtle, visual timing. Mm. But Monty Python were extraordinary with their language and their dialogue and... Uh, and, and the way they would um, insert certain things that were just so incredibly offbeat, but you would just laugh anyway. You don't know why you were laughing. <laughs> like, I remember there's always one thing that always sticks out, and no one ever remembers it, but it's some sort of insane murder mystery sketch. And Michael Palin is, is a deranged detective. And at one point he says, the first thing we need to do is we need to go and... And then he just smiles. <laughs> and then he goes, sorry, sorry, I was miles away. Um, like that. that doesn't have any impact on the sketch at all. Wow. And it gets, it gets a little laugh, but the 10-year-old me is just going, what? It definitely unlocks something in me, for sure. Yes, the nerve of it. The nerve of the, it. The courage exactly. of it. Just, just, well, I think it's funny. Yes, yes. I, I mean, this is the thing. I can remember specifically... There hadn't really been any repeats of Monty Python throughout the 80s. And then BBC was celebrating 50 years, I think. And so it showed an episode of Monty Python with an episode of Bruce Forsyth Generation Game or something. And my dad and my brother saying, you know, you should stay up for this. Mm. I didn't know who any of them were. I knew that one of them was in 40 Towers. That's about it. And the first sketch, every first sketch of the first series was Michael Palin in his um, raggedy desert, desert island outfit. So the first sketch is like three minutes long of him running over uh, hills <laughs> towards the camera. And I remember, I absolutely remember this, the boy in me who's used to Russ Abbott and Bobby Davro mm -hmm. just going, okay, so what's the payoff here? What's going to happen? What's he going to say? What's he going to say? This is going to be an amazing punchline. Yeah. This is going to be incredible. And he just goes, it's... <laughs> and then that's it um, and then the, yes. the titles start and you could pinpoint that moment for things changing for me as a, as a human being mm. because I didn't feel cheated in any way at all I felt like a door had opened oh there's a new there's a new way of being funny yeah Monty Python was this force which um, again just like Stan Nolly I very much see as, as, as a huge influence on what I do today. Yeah, they're fantastic. I'd ask you more questions, but I'm worried you're going to say, I didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition, and then we're in big trouble. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, there are things that kind of highlight just how, uh, how much of it. I don't like to use the word nerd or the word geek, but those words, <laughs> I am pretty much in that camp. And I, I do my devil best not to bring it out in public. Um, I certainly don't do it when my wife's around because um, <laughs> it's embarrassing for both of us. But there's definitely a thread through this, which is that right at the beginning you were talking about writing your own things and then mm. coming up with the idea of the room next door and thinking, well, I think you know, 30 people who follow me will find this funny. And everybody found it funny. And then you go through the same with Python, the same with Laurel and Hardy. There, there's a risk in all of those things. And then the whole world falls in love with it. So it's quite encouraging, I think, that what looks like very offbeat comedy 
something that only a few people will get. Fundamentally, we all have that sense of humour. Yes, I, I, I agree. It's encouraging, though, isn't it? It is encouraging. It certainly gives you hope. It all boils down to writing something that makes you laugh mm. and then, with the process of social media, putting it out that day. If you can do it quickly, <laughs> yeah. putting it out that day and just going, what do people think of this? <laughs> um, because you could lose it in, 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 by, the, by the next day. The fizz is gone, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not as funny. Well... I look forward to the Boris Johnson sketch where he says, you know, I didn't want to do this job. I didn't want to do this job. I wanted to be a lumberjack. <laughs> oh. Fantastic. We put them into the time capsule for you. Then. We're moving on to the fourth item. So this is either the bad thing you want to put in or the one final good thing that you want to keep. I've got a good thing and a bad thing. But I think the bad thing is much more interesting <laughs> because the good thing was just going to be my... Um, my Canavision E60 camcorder, <laughs> which just opened up a whole new world for me. You know, I'd been recording a lot of sketches and doing stuff on, on tape, on cassette tape. Mm. But this was, now I could see myself and I could, I could create sets and be various characters and all sorts. When did you get that then? 1991. Right. And at that point, you had Harry Enfield's television programme, so I did my version of that. I thought of new characters I could do, and I mm -hmm. filmed them. It was at KYTV, actually, in 1991. Yes. Never seen it myself. No, no. It was all right. <laughs> and Vic Reeves as well. I, I actually replicated his desk that he used to have at Big Nice Out, which was just full of paraphernalia. Yes. Just stuff, you know? <laughs> I replicated that. And it was, again, improving me as a performer because I hadn't, I hadn't had any training. And, of course, I was 13, so mm. I was not a popular child at school. I didn't really have many friends, and I used to come home, and I used to do these things by myself. Not very... But the funny thing is, is that <laughs> I had a friend who liked Monty Python, and he was kind of into it as well. And when he found out I had a camera, he came over, and he would do stuff with me, and I hated it. <laughs> I hated, I hated collaborating with him. And that's when I realised that, oh, God, you know, I, I'm only ever going to ever do this on my own. <laughs> and he got incredibly angry when I deleted all of our stuff that we did. Because <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, I want to go in, I want to go in a 13-year-old. I want to go in a different direction. <laughs> I don't want this on record as part of my history. When they do the <laughs> retrospective... I don't want this coming up. Yeah, exactly. It's this um, awful... I mean, that's how you don't make friends. <laughs> yes. um, what was more important to me was honing my talent mm -hmm. uh, or my craft. Um, but you can do that on your own. You can do it in a solitary way, I think. I didn't go to drama school, so I, it was not something I ever felt um, confident in doing, making friends with, with, with people who shared that similar sort of uh, work ethic or that mm. desire... Um, so you were of the school of, well, I've got this idea, but I'm not going to tell anyone particularly yet. Exactly that. I just wanted it to be seen by a producer or a commissioner. You know, I would go through the Radio Times and see who produced stuff. Like, oh, oh John Naismith, right. Uh, to John Naismith at the BBC, that sort of thing. Uh, I did meet him um, many, many years ago mm. because I was trying to get a web series off the ground that he saw potential in. He and Graham Garden saw uh, potential in it and gave me notes. Mm. That was like a proper career high. Yeah. So, oh, John Naismith and Graham Garden have got notes for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, very, very surreal moment, but um, didn't go anywhere because um, commissioners didn't actually go for it. 
No, but as indication all the way along the line that you were doing the right sort of thing. It's exactly that. It feels right. It feels like, well, okay, I haven't got, I haven't got the right idea yet, but I'm on the right track. Yeah. I think a lot of people would probably have given up if they were in my shoes in terms of just the sheer amount of rejection. And <laughs> you know, I mean, I've I've still got lots and lots of rejections. You know, uh, PG Woodhouse apparently wallpapered his spare room with rejection letters. Uh, I did the same, but uh, I... It was a mansion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I got a rejection from Spitting Image and the, the letter heading was so bold and bright and colourful that I thought, oh, let's, let's put it up and remind myself. Every day, strange person. <laughs> um, it was like this really nice handwritten letter which mm. said, really like this joke, but it just doesn't fit for the... Uh, for the for the show. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? I did the job of reading unsolicited scripts for Granada Television for a year. Right. They sent me piles and piles of these things, and in my spare time I would sit and read through them oh. in the hope that we'd come across something that was good. <laughs> and I did in that time. I did discover scripts and writers oh. that hadn't had anything. But really, out of the thousands of scripts I read, probably four or five. Oh. I totally get that in terms of unsolicited material. But my heart would always sink if I, you know, would go to somebody's website and it says, we just don't accept it. We don't accept it. We'll send it right back to you. I mean, I remember, I remember sending... The thing about sending things at the post office is that you had to send a jiffy bag for sending it back. Mm. So you, you put the jiffy bag inside a jiffy bag, <laughs> self-stamped addressed. Double the cost. Double the cost. And, and it would bounce back. Mm. Sometimes they would just be bounced back with a stamp, you know. Oh. Bang. You know, this kind of... No department will ever read this. Oh. Bang. So, so few avenues open for me pre-internet. Well, you've got your camcorder. That's safe. Yes, yeah, so I've got my camcorder. If needs be, you can still make quality videos on that anytime you like. Yes, absolutely. But the thing I wanted to put, that I wanted to bury, is just another thing from my childhood. A Sony Triniton advert from the 1980s. <laughs> Obviously. We all know why. Obviously. No need to talk about it. No need to talk about it. <laughs> um, okay, go on then. Okay, it it was uh, the only thing in my childhood, and you know, I watched all the usual things like Doctor Who and Incredible Hulk, and accidentally watching a horror and stuff like that. I did all that, but this thing petrified me, and I would have to leave the room almost instantly because I would just cry. I'd just be in floods of tears. Wow. And the worst thing about it is that it's played for laughs, this advert. It's a locked-off shot of a sofa with the Sony Triniton in mm. front. And over the course of 30 seconds, you see a person's life. Like that. Bang. It would cut. Bang, bang, bang. So they started off on the sofa as a baby. Bang, bang. Child, boy, teenager. Then he's canoodling with his first girlfriend. Then he's got five babies. He's middle-aged. His children are grown up and they're like hippies. And he's old. Bang, oh. bang. Then the children have all gone. The wife's gone because she's dead. <laughs> because he's, a, he's an old man. Oh, God. Bang, bang. Then he's a slightly more older man. Then he's a really old man. Then he's just this decrepit sack of bones <laughs> in a flat cap. <laughs> It's horrific. And then the last take, he's dead. He's gone. Just his slippers are on the floor. Oh, my God. And then the, the painting that's always been on the wall 
that falls down. <laughs> so his whole life was worthless. Yes. And what it's saying is Sony Trinitons are durable. They will last you a lifetime. The 11, 12-year-old version of me who watched that just thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Mm. And I'm going to be that decrepit old man. And quite quickly. In 30 seconds. <laughs> and it brought home just the most horrible realisation that life is fleeting, but also that you would be this ghastly ghoul at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on top of everything, it's played for laughs. It's got this bouncy acoustic thing. Written by people in their 20s. That's what that is. Written by people in their 20s. And, it, and it, 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 it's all connected to that way of doing a commercial, which is, if you buy this product, it will last the test of time. You know, that way of doing things is just horrific. There, I remember um, there was like a Kleenex advert where a woman goes from I mean, Kleenex isn't really durable, so I don't know what that was all about. But anyway, <laughs> this woman in her 20s goes from the kitchen into the living room, and then she's in her mid-40s, and she's got her glasses on a neck chain and three kids. And, and I, I, oh, it's just horrific. And when Google tried horribly to do um, resurrect Google+, Plus, if you can remember that, yeah. their version of Twitter, they had this big advertising campaign, which was a very raw, emotional thing of, of a capturing your moments on YouTube and, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, in the blink of an eye, this, this young whippersnapper has, has become a granddad. And I don't know why that continues to be a thing, because all it does is remind you that you're going to die. It just mm. doesn't... And being told that as 11 still really, really sits here. In fact, I looked at it, I thought, I wonder if it's on YouTube... Of course it is on YouTube. And I didn't watch it because <laughs> I just thought, well, this will just send me all the way back. Yes, quite. But Another 20 years of therapy. And the, the, the things I can like remember, like watching different strokes and it would, it would come up in the ad break mm. and I bombed out of there. I remember my older brother going, oh, Mike, it's your favourite advert. Oh. They, you know, oh, oh, God, you don't realise how much this is cutting through my very existence. No, but a 10-year-old would appreciate that, would look at that and go, oh, my God, it'll be over soon. <laughs> a 20-year-old thinks, that's not me. That's not me. I'm going to be like this forever. Exactly. And the reality exactly. is that when you get there, you go, oh, shit, it was exactly like that. It was exactly like that. Uh, and and the interesting thing, I think, is that it probably didn't do well as a campaign because shortly afterwards they employed John Cleese to do loads of cheerful mm. comedy adverts because it, I think it is genuinely really dark. Dark? But why would that sell something? You're always going to associate that product with something really miserable. Yeah, the thing about Sony is that they did have a big comedy theme running through their adverts. That was their thing. They didn't go for the artistic shots of their equipment. They always employed people like John Cleese or Ryan Atkinson. Mm. His advert was, um, there's no point in me showing you this because you're watching it on a terrible television, aren't you? <laughs> Which is fine. Mm. That's absolutely fine. I don't mind comedy. I mean, there's a place for comedy in commercials, obviously, because once you've seen it, you don't laugh a second time. No. You don't laugh a third time. It just becomes annoying. But then that's true of all adverts. Yes, it is. You go, oh, not this again. Uh, yes, I know about this. Thank you. <laughs> 
I know it gets it cleaner than other things. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yes, Nanette Newman, I am aware that fairy lasts longer. <laughs> you have gone on about this for 20 years. <laughs> I get the message. Um, so ultimately, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of great art in commercials. You know, I mean, it gave a lot of people their break, for instance. Yeah. There's a lot of very interesting directors. Jonathan Glazer, for instance. I really love him as a filmmaker, and I think he did some great commercials. Who's the bloke who directed all the Simon Pegg things? Oh, Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. I did a BBC promo with Edgar Wright. Mm. When I think he was about 21. It was extraordinary. Mm. He was incredibly certain of what he wanted. Yes, I I think about Edgar in terms of what I was doing at the same time, because I think we were about the same age, and he was like, I I, I might have got this wrong, but I'm pretty sure he was like using camcorders to replicate like Indiana Jones and stuff like that. Mm. And um, he won, I remember he won a film competition on Saturday Superstore. And he, and there's like, there's footage of him on the show collecting his prize at the age of. God knows, 11 maybe, 11, 12. <laughs> what a shame nobody showed him that advert. If they'd shown him that, yes. it could have ruined his life. There was an <laughs> opening there. I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> I get the feeling that people with a slightly more morbid sense of humour or a morbid view of the world perhaps would appreciate the advert, but I certainly do not. Yeah, I think you're right. Edgar would probably have turned it into a major feature film. Indeed. Uh, I think it's just the fact that their intentions are comical and light-hearted. When somebody does something with those intentions and it ends up being extremely dark, <laughs> there's something about that that's much, much worse. Devilish. Yeah, if you watch a horror, you go, yeah, I, I get what you're trying to do to me. I get where you're trying to put me. But the makers of this commercial didn't mean to do that. No. So now I'm in a space and I'm completely lost because <laughs> no one else feels what I feel. I'm in this well, like in Silence of the Lands, <laughs> going, help. Trying to beckon a little poodle towards you. Exactly. I've been trying to beckon a poodle towards me for 30 years, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. That's it. That's the autobiography. The poodle yep. finally arrived. <laughs> oh, oh Michael, how lovely. It's been really fun talking to you. It's been great. My pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule. With me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Michael Spicer. Thank you for listening. I hope it's persuaded you that it would be wise to subscribe to this podcast so you can be informed of any new episodes as they're released, and that you enjoyed it enough to give us a five-star rating. You can even write an effusive review, if you fancy, or just a nice comment. Thank you very much. Do follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or all three if you have nothing to do during the days like me we are always willing to converse well i've got plenty of time on my hands and you can see what we're up to as well so do follow us if you like the theme music you can listen to it anytime you like in fact you can listen to it all day long on spotify just put it on repeat it was written by past the peas music this was a cast off production for a cast produced by john fenton stevens Right, all that wonderful talk of the great Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy has left me in this sort of mood. Commence your dancing, commence a prancing, just start advancing, right and left a glancing, a moochie dancing, slide and glide and trancing, you do a tango jiggle with a Texas Tommy wiggle, take your partner and you hold her. Lightly enfold her A little bolder Just work your shoulder Snap your fingers One and all In the hall At the ball That's all Some ball
Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.